Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Good morning, church. Our Bible reading is taken from 2 Samuel, chapter 12, verse 1 to 14. When I am done reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. Please respond by saying, thanks be to God. 2 Samuel, chapter 12, from verse 1 to 14. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ill lamp he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ill lamp that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamp four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you, the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah and if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you, will die. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. And uh, good morning if you are here with us for the first time. As Dami said, we are so happy to see you. We are so happy to meet you. And we'd love to talk to you at the end of the service, but beyond that as well. We've been going through a series, and this is the fourth of the faith of the 
fifth message. So this is the penultimate um, uh, message of the series. And we've called it the anatomy of sin. So before I get into this message, can we just pray together quickly? Lord, your word is light. And so we ask that there will be light right now. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you come. Come in the words I will speak. Come in the hearts that will be open to receive. We need you, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Um, I haven't watched Confession. I have not watched one of the movies in the Fast and Furious uh, franchise. From what I know, I think they're on number 24 right now. Or something like that. I don't know. It just keeps, it just keeps, it just keeps going, whatever. It's almost as many as the iPhones that you have. You know, whatever. So I don't know. What, what's your own favorite movie franchise? Avengers. How many are they in Avengers? I thought that I was two. Anything? Eh? Oh, they're not. Four. Or oh, whatever. Um, anybody else? All the Chicago PDs. Okay. Star Wars. But, eh? No, no, no. We're in church. We're in church. You can't have bad. Nothing bad. Nothing bad. I'll tell you mine. You know mine? Mine is Rocky. Yeah, some of that are looking. I'll tell you. Don't worry. Don't worry. You see, recently I even got, I'm not old. It's not, it doesn't have anything to do with age. And, and ageism is it's, it's a problem. Go and listen to the second message in this series, Emmanuel. Now, I even watched the recent, the closing scene uh, recently with my, my two sons. The closing scene of Rocky III with my two sons. And you know, just trying to show them the characters and you know, just initiate them into it because my wife refused to be initiated into it. Um, you know, I walk out to the Rocky uh, theme songs. If you don't know the Rocky theme songs, you are missing. But a lot of you are looking at me strange. And so what I will do is something I've always wanted to do to my wife, but she will not allow me personally, but I'm going to do it. Now she's here in front of all of you. I'm going to give you a brisk tour through the Rocky franchise. No, 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 no. I didn't tell you to put that. Before we get that there, wait for my cue. All right, now they're about, um, they're about seven, eight of them, but it's just that they have different names. Um, but in Rocky one, Rocky, Rocky Balboa is this uh, grade B fighter. He's, you know, he's never had a, he's never been one of the big people. And then there was this champ. And through some kind of, uh, Lock, uh, the champ called Apollo Creed, right, is looking for, he just wants to, he, he's beating everyone and he just wants to have a normal, a fight that can, you know, seal his legacy and somehow they choose this Rocky Balboa. So in Rocky 1, very nice story, wonderful, he meets a woman that he likes, he falls in love with, but in Rocky 1, he fights Apollo, it wasn't meant to be a title fight, and they draw, they draw, Rocky really fights well, and it's like stunning. By the time you get to Rocky II, Apollo now feels like he needs to get his image back, right? Like, how could this bomb take me the distance and not, and I couldn't beat him? And um, he felt people questioning the legitimacy of his title. And so Rocky gets another shot, right? Rocky is, is now his wife, but his wife doesn't want him to actually fight. She's pregnant, and so he's now wrestling, should he fight or should not fight? And then at the end, when she just gives birth, oh God, I feel like I'm going to cry. When she gives birth, and he's thinking, I'm not going to fight again, and then she just says, I have one more thing to say to you. Like what? She says, win. Like, what? 
win. And then song, song, song starts playing. You know, whatever. So at the end of Rocky 2, Rocky fights Apollo, and in one of the most dramatic scenes, right, two of them fall down, and they're counting one to ten, and around nine, Rocky stands up, Apollo, Apollo falls down, Rocky is the champion of the world. Yeah. Amen. So... Then in Rocky III, what happens is a new fighter comes on the scene. His name is Clubber Lang. Clubber Lang, that's played by Mr. T. He's beating everybody, but Rocky's manager doesn't want him to fight him. Eventually, they fight, and he defeats Rocky. And at the same time, Rocky's manager gets a heart attack there. So Rocky's manager doesn't see Rocky lose. He actually thinks Rocky wins. And then he dies at the end, uh, just when Rocky comes back from the fight. And that was such an emotional scene. So what's Rocky going to do? He feels like a bum. He's nothing to do again. He's feeling sorry for himself. He gets another coach. Somebody offers to coach him. You know who offers to coach him? Apollo Creed, the guy he defeated in Rocky II. And so they now become best friends. They train. Wonderful Rocky III is probably the best of the, of the Lord. They train. They do everything. And then at the end, he, flies, he fights Kovalang. And Rocky, because Apollo coached him, Rocky now wins. All right? In Rocky IV, and this is the height of the Cold War between America and the Soviet Union, in Rocky IV, there's a drug-filled machine of a man called Ivan Drago. Ivan Drago comes. He comes, insults the whole of America. There's now an exhibition fight. Apollo comes out of retirement. He wants to fight him. How can you insult America? An exhibition fight. Everybody's meant to be happy. Drago beats Apollo so much that he kills him. And Rocky himself now feels... Like he too has to come out of retirement. And so he decides he's going to fight Ivan Drago, not in America, but in Russia on Christmas Day in Soviet Union. And so he fights. It was a very terrible fight, but you know what happened. Rocky wins. That's how Rocky forwards, right? And there was some chance of USA, forget that, Cold War stuff. Rocky V, um, let's just forget Rocky V. It was, it was bad. It was just very bad. I don't know what they were doing. But now you get to Rocky VI. And Rocky VI, in Rocky VI, Rocky is now an old man, wife old. That son that they had from Rocky II has now grown up. He's trying to make a name for himself without the father's name. And then there's a new loudmouth champ, played by a guy, a former boxer called Anthony Tava. And he's just, he's insulting Rocky. And so Rocky comes very old, now in his 50s or maybe early 60s, and said he's going to fight him. But the son doesn't want him to fight him. The son doesn't want him to embarrass both of them. And he's begging Rocky, don't do this, don't do this. And so he gets to one point where he says, don't you care what people think about you? You just want to go and disgrace yourself. And then you get one of the most important scenes in the entire Rocky franchise here. Let me tell you something you already know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place, and I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. You, me, or nobody is gonna hit as hard as life. But it ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Now, if you know what you're worth, now go out and get what you're worth. But you got to be willing to take the hits and not pointing fingers saying you ain't where you want to be because of him or her or anybody. Cowards do that and that ain't you. You're better than that. Let me tell you something. Let us pray.
There's one part I want you not to miss there. He said, it ain't about how much you get hit, but it's not, it ain't about how much you hit, but it's about how much you get hit and keep moving forward. In other words, it's not necessarily just about action, it's about reaction. And if you think about what we're talking about with sin, it's not so much that we don't sin. It's, we've said before that sin is present in all of us. We all sin. And as, um, as, as um, was said in the song for the word um, in 1 John 2, we all sin. But it's not about whether you sin, action, but more about what you do after sinning, reaction. And so in our last sermon, we examined Cain, who was a murderer. He murdered his own brother. And after that, what did he do? What was his reaction? He moved further and further away from God, despite God wanting, to change, wanting him to change. A bad reaction. Today, we're going to look at another murderer. His name is David. We're going to see how, uh, why he fell into sin and how he responded after being confronted by God by, about his sin. And what David is going to show us is how only a deep interaction with the gospel is the adequate response for gaining increasing victory over sin. In other words, we're going to see a better reaction than that of Cain. And so today we're going to talk about the blinding nature of sin. But don't get it wrong. We're not just going to see the blinding nature of sin. We're going to see the eye-opening nature of the gospel. So let's examine this sermon called Sin Blinds You Under Three Headings. The blind man, the contrite man, and the seen man. The blind man, the contrite man, and the seen man. Now, the context for this passage that was read to us by Tommy Sin, right? The context for this is the previous chapter, right? We're in 2 Samuel 12. That's what was read. But the previous chapter in chapter 11, so much had gone there. But look at how verse 11 ends, the, the ending of it. It says in verse 27, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. What was it that he did that displeased the Lord? At the very beginning, David's army had gone to war, and he was on the top of the palace, and then he saw a woman having her bath. Now, let me just say this. As guys, if you are looking, if you, if you ever see a woman having her bath, her bath that is not your wife, if you stay there for more than one or two seconds, bad things happen, all right? Just saying. You should not continue to look. Unfortunately, David didn't get this memo. He looked. This woman's name was Bathsheba. She was the wife to one of his officials that was fighting the war. His name is Uriah. So David sent for her. He got her pray. He, he slept with her, or less raping her, because she didn't have a choice. And then she got pregnant. She told David. David was now trying to fix the problem. So what did he do? He sent for Uriah from the battlefield so that Uriah can sleep with his wife and so that he can say it was really his son. But Uriah was a man of honor. And Uriah, he refused to even go to his house. How can I how can I go to my house and sleep with my wife when other my fellow soldiers are fighting and giving their lives? He was a man of honor. And so after a while, David now got him drunk, trying to get him to go back home. The man refused. And so David saw that there was no way. The, the, the secret was going to come out. So what could he do? He had to get rid of Uriah. 
And so he sent word to Joab, the army commander, and told him they should set, they should, he basically sabotaged their, 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 their strategy. They, they went, took soldiers in front into the thickest point of the enemy line, and at some point said they should withdraw and left some soldiers there, including Raya, and Raya died. And so everything whew, is now settled because David now asks Bathsheba, yeah, she, yeah, come and be my wife. And that was what David did that displeased the Lord. And so David needs to be called out. But sometimes direct confrontation isn't as effective with certain people. David supposedly was one of them. And so as we see in the very beginning, it says the Lord sent, verse 1, the Lord sent Nathan to David. And when Nathan goes to David, rather than tell David exactly what this is, you know what he did? He gave him a story. Story, story. Now, the way this story is told, some people call it a parable, but it's really a story. Um, it seems like David sees this story as happening in his kingdom. And you saw what happened. He talked about a poor man and a rich man. The poor man had just one ewe lamb. The rich man had so much cattle, but the rich man wanted that poor man's cattle, at that poor man's ewe lamb. And so when a visitor came to see the rich man, he somehow got that, uh, your, uh, the poor man's ewe uh, uh, lamb and then slaughtered it and gave it to him. And when David heard this story, verse 6 says, he was, he was infuriated. He burned, verse 5, said he burned with anger. Burned with anger. And he said he must pay four times. But it wasn't, and that's really from Exodus 22, verse 1. It wasn't so much just that he should pay four, uh, four times. David said, this kind of injustice must never happen in my kingdom. This man will what? Die, verse 6. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. That's verse 6. But in verse 5, he says, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must And then in one of the most famous passages of the whole scripture, Nathan said, sorry, I have to use King James, thou art the man. It's very funny and amazing how much we cannot see our sin and yet burn with righteous indignation against the sin of others. Why does this happen? I'll tell you why it happens. Because sin blinds us. It makes us blind. Here's how. If I say, how can so, how, if, if I say I was blind to what is going on uh, behind me, there are two ways. If I can't see something, right? If I say I can't see what's going on behind me, there are two ways of, uh, I, I can say I was blind to it. One is you damage my eyeballs. I will not see what's happening behind me. Or two, is that you make me see something in front of me such that I don't know what's going on behind me, isn't it? You see, in 2 Samuel chapter 10, that's two chapters before now, David had been, he, he, David was a military genius. He was, you know, defeating kingdoms here and there over. He was conquering so many lands. They had so many victories. It was as though he could not do wrong. And don't forget, David, David 
had this promise that he was God's son as the king of Israel because Israel was God's son as a nation. So the king of Israel was now God's son. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God had made a, pro, uh, through Nathan, had made a covenant with David. He was his son. So David was representing God in those battles. The battle, the enemies of Israel were really the enemies of God. So when David was conquering people in 2 Samuel chapter 10 at the Zenith, you know whose battle he was fighting? Eh? Whose battle was he fighting? God's. In other words, David was doing God's work. His battles are for the Lord. And so, if he is defeating God's enemies, David believes that he is in the right with God. And so here's how we become blind. The good work that we do for God can blind us to the development and the work of sin in other aspects of our lives. The sin is behind you. You cannot see it. Why? Because you are also doing a lot of good work for God in front. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so we are blind towards that sin. Let me, let me, let's, David speaks about this in Psalm 36, verse 1 to 2. Let's see, let's see, I am, let's see that. He says, I have a message from God in my heart concerning the sinfulness, sinfulness of the wicked. There is, now notice this, there is no fear of God where? Before their what? In other words, they cannot see the fear of God. That is not said before their eyes. You know why? Again, it's not because their eyes have been damaged. It's because they've been distracted by something else. Look, verse 2. In their own eyes, they do what? They flatter themselves. So in other words, rather than put the fear of God in their eyes, what is happening? They are looking at something else. What is it? They are flattering themselves. And it's the result of flattering themselves that it says, finish it up, too much to... And so the process, put that up, the process really is this. This is how blindness to sin happens. Self-observation of good deeds. Ah, you know, ah, this thing I did, you know, this one I did, you keep looking at it. If I said they flatter themselves too much, you keep doing it, then that, the next thing that happens is you start to flatter yourself. Self-flattery. And when this happens, the last thing that happens is blindness to other sins. It's when we, you know, someone says, you will know what you truly worship. When nobody's around, what do you daydream about? Don't lie to yourself. What do you daydream about? Maybe you daydream about all the lives you've touched. Or maybe you daydream about how you've kept your virginity. Or maybe you daydream about how good your preaching is. And all the while what is happening, you are not seeing how you are deceptive towards people. You don't see how pathological your lying is. Or you don't see how much you justify your stinginess. Somehow, we're able to coexist. It is like having that sexually promiscuous social justice warrior. 
fighting for the injustice of the poor. But yet, you cannot guard your own loins. Or it could be the virgin who looks down on the poor. She is good with God because she's kept her virginity. But what she does to the poor and how she thinks of them and how she talks to them, well, you know, nobody is perfect. Or it could be the philanthropist, the one who gives his money a lot. The philanthropist who emotionally abuses his wife. As my wife would say, pick your choose. Flatter yourselves too much, not keeping the fear of God in your eyes. Why? Because something else has distracted you. You flatter yourself and therefore you cannot detect your sin. Sin makes you blind. And when this thing grows and grows, you know what eventually leads to? It leads to a catastrophic end, just as with David. Because over time, what happens is we distance ourselves more and more from God. We replace a relationship or a growing relationship with God with what? A growing relationship with ourselves. Like, look at the mirror and be like, man, I look good. And really, what I'm talking about is the moral mirror. You look at him and be like, look at what I've done here. Look at this text that this person sent to me about how great I am. Look, how can you tell me I'm this sinful person when people are saying this thing about me? Sin is making you blind. You daydream. You take that text, you look at it, you drop it. 30 minutes later, you look at it again. You start sending, you send it to your spouse. You send it to your friends. Look at what this person said about me. And all the while, something else is growing. Congratulations. You love yourself. And yet something is growing that is leading to a catastrophic end, just as with David. Let me tell you something. When this thing starts to grow and grow and grow, and disaster is looming, disaster is looming, do you know the most gracious thing God can do to you? You know the most gracious thing God can do to you? It's a prayer a lot of people make. Don't ever make that prayer again. God exposes you. It's a gracious thing. It's the thing we fear the most, and yet it is the thing that you need the most. That if you are growing and growing and growing in this sin, and you cannot see it, and God has tried every way to show you, the only way he can now get your attention is by exposing you. Because notice in verse 1, Nathan did not go to David on his own accord. Who sent Nathan to David? It was his grace. Because if God did not send Nathan to David, everything was settled. In chapter 11, David was not going to do anything about it. He had just brought the, the wife of the woman he, uh, the woman he raped the, and the man that he had killed. He had now brought her into his home. Everything would have been fine, swept under the carpet, leading to his destruction. If you are in a terrible sin now and God is about to expose you, give praise to him. Because if he leaves you to your own self and your own devices, there's only one place you are going to. Sometimes the most gracious thing God has done to people with hard hearts is to expose them. Are you in need of exposure? But you see, the issue is this. It's not just that God exposes you. That's one step. 
But as Rocky says, it's not how hard, it's not how hard you hit, but how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. In other words, it is your reaction to God exposing you that matters. How would we react? That takes me to my second point. The contrite man. There's only one way to respond, guys. And it's with an old word that we don't use too often again. Contrition. What do I mean by contrition? It means to be broken. To be broken. It still sounds a bit one kind, doesn't it? Remember last week we looked a lot at self, uh, uh, at hard-heartedness. When, when, you know, that when the process of sin has gone from one level to another level to another level, this process of hardening. Now, if you take the metaphor a little bit forward, if the, hard, if the heart is hard, what contrition means is that that hard heart needs to be what? Broken. And what does it need to be broken by? The realization of what has been done. This is always the challenge for those who are not contrite. Is Have you realized the depth of what has been done? Now, David, I think, eventually does. And so he writes a psalm about, in response to what had happened when Nathan had confronted him. If you look at Psalm 51, the beginning of Psalm 51 tells you exactly what, I didn't say you should put that up yet, Tomwa. Well, you are not your A game today. But if you look at Psalm 51, the beginning of Psalm 51 tells you that it's a psalm that David wrote, that David wrote after Nathan had confronted him on this issue of sin with Bathsheba. And so he writes Psalm 51 there. And in Psalm 51, now you can't. <laughs> in Psalm 51 verse 16, he says this, there's one way of responding, and this isn't the right way. Look at verse 16. You do not delight in sacrifice or I bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. Now, don't get this wrong. Because in verse 19, he says, then you, I would, uh, you would um, accept my sacrifice. God is the one that appointed the sacrifices. So sacrifices are good. What he's saying is, you don't delight in having legitimate action or approved action, legitimate action, legitimate action without deep contrition. If you try to do the work to respond just by doing something without the broken heart, God does not delight in that. Amen? There's sacrifice, yes, but he needs to see the brokenness of heart. What we need is a broken and contrite heart. Listen to what he then says in verse 17. My sacrifice, oh God, is a broken spirit. Because a broken and contrite heart, God will not what? He will despise sacrifices not given out of a broken heart, but he will be delighted in a broken and a contrite heart. Jesus puts it in another way. Jesus says, blessed are the Poor in spirit. Those who appreciate their moral bankruptcy. But this is very hard for the average negotiant man or woman. You know why? We are people who fix things. We don't believe in all this thinking about something deeply and what have you. In fact, we see it as you are just either, you have too much time. Oh, Nisha, you don't have work. It's just indulgence. Or we also look at it as paralyzing. 
If I keep thinking about it, if it keeps coming, I won't be able to move on with my life. But I don't think those are excuses we give. The real th reason why we do that is because it's very uncomfortable, as we said last week. It is uncomfortable, and let me tell you why it's uncomfortable. It requires you placing, um, it requires, what we would li like to do is to place our achievements before our eyes, the flattery we talked about. It requires you not doing that. It requires you putting something else before your eyes. Verse 3 of chapter 51 says this. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always what? You see, what we would like to do is to place our achievements before our eyes. What brokenness and contrition means is that you replace your achievement, your good works, the things that people know you for, replace that with what? Your sin. He says, I know my transgression. Do you know your transgression? Do you know it? Not, do you know your spouse's transgression? Not, do you know your boss's transgression? Do you know your transgression? Deeply. And this is where it starts becoming uncomfortable because it is easy to spot other people's transgression. But when you know your transgression, when your sin is always before you, you know what that does? It breaks you open. Let me give you, I've had to counsel, this is always the hardest thing in counseling. When there are people who have committed egregious sins, when people have committed egregious sins, they usually go through certain levels. And the hardest level for me to get them to is to be broken. There's sorrow, there's many things, but you always see that they're not broken. And you can see it over time. Let me give you four characteristics of somebody who is truly broken, someone who is contrite. If you are truly broken or con and contrite, you will hardly be self-referential. If you were me, I wouldn't. If you were me, I don't. I, I, I don't. I normally don't do this. I wouldn't do that. I, do you understand? Self-referential. That person isn't broken. How dare you? You, are you not the one that actually committed that sin? Now, all of a sudden, you are referencing yourself. You reference yourself because the true you that you are trying to see is the good things that you are doing, not the sins that you commit. But David says, I know my transgression. And he's trying to refer to something. He can't be referring to himself because he was the one that murdered Uriah. He was the one that committed adultery with Bathsheba. You hardly be self-referential. Second, that person hardly openly criticizes others. Now, I'm not saying that if you have committed an egregious sin, that means you can never critique evil. But you hardly openly criticize others. This, there's a certain kind of, you just committed, you are the one that committed this thing, and yet you are talking about the government and how terrible the government are. Very easy to always criticize the government because nobody is putting a flashlight in front of your own deeds. Very easy to criticize the government because everybody can see what the government is doing. Their own flaws are open for people to see. But no one is searching, putting the searchlight on you. But somebody who is broken has put the searchlight upon themselves so that when they, they criticize, it is, they don't just do it anyhow because they are reminded of their own sin. Third one, and very linked to it, is that when they do critique, they do so with a lot of what? Restraint. 
there's almost a sense of discomfort as they're doing it. They're putting caveats here and there because they know that I am no better than that other person. And so when you, when you critique, you do it with a sense of humility. Am I speaking to somebody here? This is how you know somebody who is broken and contrite. With a lot of restraint. Lastly, the person is full of compassion towards others. Because the person knows my only way out of this thing is compassion towards me. And if people have given you compassion, how dare you then become not compassionate towards others? So if I see somebody who supposedly is broken, it's like that guy who Jesus, uh, Jesus the parable that Jesus tells about the, uh, the very wealthy man who had a servant. He forgave the servant of all his debt. And then the next thing, the debt that he could never pay, the next thing he sees that servant with somebody else that owes him a fraction of what was just forgiven him. And he held the guy by the neck and put him into prison. You know that guy is not broken. So somebody offends you. Somebody does something to you. Nothing close. Nothing near as egregious to what you did, and all of a sudden you've blown your top. You cannot be broken. And what do you think God delights in? A broken and a contrite heart. For us to get there, one word is absolutely key, and it's the word empathy. Empathy. The reason why you'll be able to exhibit those qualities is because you have empathy. You see, let me let's talk about empathy a little bit. David was angry. You remember in verse 6, David was angry with the rich man in Nathan's story. You know why he was angry with the rich man? Why was David burning with fury? Nothing was done to David. David was not the person that this thing was done to, right? Why was David burning with fury? I'll tell you why. Because David could see and feel the, the effect of the wickedness of the rich man upon the poor man. Do you understand what I'm saying? He could see and he could feel it. It's not just that he could see it. You know there's a way you can see something that's going on. You say, ah, none of my own business. David could see. Look, can you imagine? He, he could think about, so now this lamb, this lamb, this only lamb. That has been taken away. What is this man going to do? That lamb meant something to him. And what is he now going to do? Whereas this one is just enjoying his life. He had all of these things. He was burning with fury because he felt the pain. Not only seeing it. In other words, David entered the shoes of the poor man. David empathized with him. And what was annoying, and this is the problem, a lack of empathy because he was showing that he didn't have empathy. The story was about him. And therefore, a lack of empathy leads us to do terrible things. Here David was decimating Uriah's family. And he didn't even know. He was just trying to cover up himself. Because he did not feel the pain of Uriah. That's the point. Somebody's family was being torn apart by your own deeds. And... So he, he was furious. It was because he had empathy when it was his story. But in real life, he didn't. He lacked empathy. Sometimes, the way we get broken is by pausing to see the effect of our sin on our victims. 
and quite often offenders don't like it because it's uncomfortable. It would have paid David to listen to Joab, how Joab felt about corrupting the army. It would have paid David to listen to this fa this, uh, the family of the soldiers that died because of the plan that was devised to kill Uriah. It would have paid David to listen to how violated Bathsheba felt. It would have paid him. It would have broken him. And so if you have committed an egregious sin, can I ask you, or you continually commit a sin to somewhere that's close to you, can I ask you, don't be too quick to assure the victim, don't worry, it won't happen again. It won't happen again. Or, or I'll fix it. I'll fix it. That's what we like to do, to fix things. Let's move forward. Let's move forward. How can we do it? How can we quickly fix it? The problem with that is that you are doing exactly what we saw in Psalm 51, verse 16. You are bringing an acceptable, legitimate sacrifice, but you are doing it without being broken, and the person knows that you are not contrite or broken, and so they want to reject it. We want to quickly assuage our own guilt to see, look at now, I'm trying to do something to fix it, but the heart is not broken. It's not contrite. And then you say, well, can the person just get over it? Well, I, but I have tried now. Listen, when you don't listen, you underappreciate their experience. And when you underappreciate their experience, it means that you underappreciate their pain. And when you underappreciate their pain, it means that you underappreciate their worth. And if you underappreciate their worth, it means that you underappreciate their humanity. It's a question of value. Am I worth something? If I'm worth something, look at what you did to me. And you don't want to even listen. Listen, try to understand. The problem is if we try and listen, we become too uncomfortable because we don't want to be confronted with, you are the man. On one hand, we are blind. On the other hand, we want to quickly move forward. And we don't know that not listening, not feeling the person's pain is undermining the worth of that person. Whereas when you listen, it indicates that you value their experience. And if you value their experience, you value their pain. And if you value their pain, you value their worth. And if you value their worth, you value their humanity. You see they count. They need to see, the person, the people you have hurt, they need to see that you believe they count through your brokenness and contrition towards them. And then after, they need to see that through lived out action to others. In 1994, Nelson Mandela just became president of South Africa. Am I right? No, not 94. He came out in 1990. Yeah, it was 94. He just became the president of South Africa, a landslide. This is after years of systemic racism through the system of what we call apartheid. Impoverished the, the majority black people there. And now they are able to get, they couldn't vote. Can you imagine? Black people in South Africa could not really vote. Now, Mandela is coming to power. It's our turn. Do you know what was about to happen? People wonder why Mandela is celebrated. Don't forget he was in prison for 27 years. 27 years. 
He came out, and people were just waiting, waiting for him to give the order, let us gaslight these people. They don't have our numbers. We know what we've suffered. They were ready to destroy all of them. And now he has now come to power. He can, he can do what he wants to do. You know what Nelson Mandela did? On the one hand, he called for forgiveness. On the other hand, he set up something called the Truth and Reconciliation Committee. In, you know what he did? In that Truth and Reconciliation Committee, he took, he, they got people, this was led by uh, Desmond Tutu, they got people who had suffered under apartheid in front of the people who had punished them, and they, they, they cried out to see what it is that you have done to me. Look at what it is. See what it is. They wanted the perpetrators to hear and feel the pain. That thing saved a bloodbath in, our, in South Africa. Because at least they felt that you could now hear their pain. It gave dignity to the pain that they felt. Your brokenness requires you to have empathy. But there's another thing that empathy does, because it's really not about you. Empathy is about others. Notice what David said after Nathan told him. After Nathan said everything to you, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. What? Sinned against the Lord? But what about, no, I understand if he sinned against Uriah. I understand if he sinned against Joab, against Bathsheba, against the officers, against the soldiers, against the Israelites. But against the Lord, how? Maybe I can put it this way. Imagine somebody stole from you, like Olumide was saying. If that person is caught, who is the person caught by? When you say, ah, the, the, the thief has been caught and has been arrested. If he's arrested, who is arrested by? Then after he's arrested by them, someone charges him. Who charges him? The police. Then after that, he's prosecuted. Who prosecutes him? No, in court. Who, who prosecutes him? A, a lawyer representing the, the state, all right? So I don't know what they're called, like district attorneys or so, whatever. All right? And then, okay, the lawyers are looking at me like, eh? I didn't go to law school. All right, and then after that, if he's found guilty, he's sentenced by who? Notice, the person that he stole from could not, did not arrest, did not charge, did not prosecute, did not sentence. But he didn't steal from any of those people. Why is it those guys representing the state that he stole from? You know why? Because the person was able to get property and flourish within a community, a society, a state. Because of the laws of that state, because of the, the, the sovereignty of that state over the, uh, the entire environment. So that when he commits a crime, yes, he commits a crime against you, but at the most fundamental level, he's committing the crime against the people of the Federal Republic of Nigeria because they are the sovereign over that land. Do you understand that? And so whenever we commit a sin, even though we may commit a sin against someone, we are committing, committing it against the sovereign at the most fundamental level. We are committing it against the sovereign of the universe. Who is that? God. That's why in Psalm 51 verse 4, he's even more emphatic. He says, against you only have I committed 
this, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight? Against him. Who is the one that he committed the sin against? Notice why this thing was egregious. In verse, eight, in verse eight, uh, 7, he says, this is what the Lord God Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if this had been too little, I would have given you even It's not just that God was sovereign. It's that God was gracious to David. Let me ask you. Do you ever think of your sin that way? Because yes, God gives commands, but sin is not just a transgression of a command. Sin is a breaking of a relationship with a good and a gracious God. When you sin, is it, ah, well, God, there's none of us. Nothing is perfect. Eh, I broke this one, but at least I I committed out that one. Do you ever think of the one who gives that command? Everyone, close your eyes, please. Maybe if you are, except you are not a Christian. You are here today. How did you get here today? Some of us drove. Some of us took public transport. But we paid for it. How did you get that money? Exactly. God provided for you. We are here today. And you're actually here today. You are not in the hospital. You are not in the mortuary. You are not in the grave. How did you get here that you are so alive? Yes. It's because God gives you breath. You are here today. You are rejoicing. Many of you came with your children. They are not sick. They are with you. They are rejoicing. How is that possible? Yes. It's because God watches over them. You are here today. Most of us are employed. We are not thinking of what we are going to do. We, are, we may be looking for another job, but at least our hands are doing something. Where did you get that job from? Know that if we were in a war-torn country, you would not be talking about your job. Why do you have that? Yes, it's because God gave it to you. 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 Now open your eyes. How does it feel to sin against that God? The truth is that every time we sin, and all the time because we all sin, we don't deserve God's goodness. What we deserve is his punishment. For one who has given you so much, for one who has proven himself over and over and over to you, every time we break his commandments, what we are doing is that we are saying he's not good enough. David wanted something more. He was not content. His sin was driven by lack of contentment, but that is saying that God is not enough. Does that break your heart? Think about him. Think about him and what he has been to you. And then think about what sin is. Somebody will say, all right, I get it, I get it, I get it. I'm meant to be deep, I'm meant to be broken, I'm meant to be contrite. I'm meant to feel the pain of the victim. I'm meant to see how this thing affects my relationship with God, what it says about what I think about God. I think I'm beginning to break. I think I'm beginning to be contrite. But as Rocky said, 
It's not just the fact that you react, but how do you move forward? What is the right way to move forward? It's not just for me to stay down there. When sin hits me, when I have sinned, what do I do? How do I move forward? I know I shouldn't just move forward by trying to fix it. It should be with contrition, but I still need to move forward. How do I move forward? Moving forward requires you seeing. It requires you seeing. Turn to your neighbor and say, I must see. That takes me to my third and final point, the seeing man. Remember I said, what we truly deserve and what makes sense. Because when that person stole, if he's apprehended, he should be sentenced, isn't it? He should receive his punishment. If we find today that we saw a man that was raping four-year-old girls, and then we say he was sorry, let him go. What would we say? Huh? Would, how many of us would support it because the man was crying? Exactly. Thank God all of our heads are put right properly. <laughs> Who wants to live in a world, a society that can allow that kind of egregious sin to go forward? Who wants to live in that kind of society? If you don't want to live in that kind of society, then you don't want a God that is just going to live sin without being punished. God must judge. Amen? God must judge. Amen? Amen. God must judge. Amen? Amen? He can't just let go. David destroyed someone's family. And so the judgment that came to David in verses 10 to 12, right? He said, you do this thing in secret. Now, the judgment that came to David was a judgment that was unique to his family. This is what's going to happen to your family. This, and really, if you read the chapters after verses 13 to 20, chapters 13 to 20, you just see the unraveling of David's family. And yet, at the same time, God spares David's life. And you say, well, but, ah, because he says that your sin is taken away. I have sinned against the Lord, verse 13. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. The Lord has taken away your sin. Because of his repentance, his sin was taken away. And let me say this, if you are here today and you've committed or you are in certain kinds of sin and you are standing to repent, God is willing to take away your sin. Then he, he must judge. Why will he take away his sin? It's not that he forgets the judgment. It's just that he's also that kind of God that forgives. But how can the two of them meet together? How is it possible that on the one hand, the judgment of your sin, and on the other hand, the forgiveness of your sin, how can they coexist? It requires you seeing, again, God's provision. The blind must see. Turn to your neighbor again and say, I must see. But now, turn to your neighbor and say, you must see. You see, the judgment and the forgiveness of David's sin, the judgment and the forgiveness of David's sin, they met together in the, in the taking of another's life in his place. Look at verse 14. But because, by, but because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. In other words, 
as I said, the judgment and forgiveness of David's sin meet in the taking of another's life in his place. And in this case, who was that other's life? His son. I think you know where I'm going. When you repent, the judgment and forgiveness of your sin, they meet in the taking of another's life in your place. And whose life? The son of David, who also happens to be the son of God. Matthew chapter 1 verse 21. Let's read it together. But after, together, but after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name because Jesus is what you need. The judgment of your sin, which must take place, but the forgiveness of your sin, which we desire, can only meet in the judgment of the Son of God on the cross. This is how you move forward. It requires you taking your eyes away from flattering yourself or taking your eyes away from just being guilty and being condemned to looking on the cross for the one who was condemned in your place. Amen. When we see the grace of God, we can look at us. You see, the thing is, David could live because he stopped seeing how wonderful he was. He started to look at God. But the more he looked at God, the more he saw his sin. But the more he saw his sin, the more he saw the grace of God. And it must be the same way with us. Stop looking at your achievement as your way of validating your identity. Look at what you have done that is wrong. But don't define yourself by your sin. Define yourself by the Savior that saved you. The more we see how great our sin is, the more we can see how great our Savior is. But finally, David still had to live in a new life. And in Psalm 51, he says, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. You see, God's grace in Jesus doesn't make you forget your sin. No. Nor does it make you paralyzed by your sin. It makes you see how great your sin is and how great your Savior is. Jesus came that you can see. John chapter 9 verse 39. For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind can see. But if Jesus came so that you can see, the Holy Spirit came so that you can live. And now how do you live? You live as someone who is humble by their sin, but somebody who is liberated by the salvation of Jesus Christ. You live as somebody who empathizes because of their sin, but somebody who is able to move forward because of the power of the Holy Spirit. Because through Jesus, our eyes are open. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.